0: Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me And hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my honor to invite Michael Baldwin onto the show. Michael has a new book out called Every Memory Deserves Respect. EMDR, The Proven Trauma Therapy with the Power to Heal. Now, Michael's book has recently released. And I'm going to have him share about that. But I heard it on another podcast that's one of my favorite podcasts, Therapist Uncensored. And when I was listening to it with his co-author, Deborah L. Korn, who's a psychologist, I was just blown away with his story of healing and growth and change and what it's taken to get there. And then the book that he's put out to help educate society at large about The nature of trauma and just its profound impacts on our lives. So, Michael, thank you so much for sharing some time with me today to talk about your journey, your book, and kind of our shared mission of helping society really wake up to the reality of trauma in our lives and its long lasting impacts, and also the hope to heal on the backside of that, right? Well, thank you, Ed, for having me. It's a pleasure, and I'm honored to be a guest. Thank you so much. So, let's just start with the most obvious thing. The cover of your book is so beautiful, and it has the resting Russian dolls, and it has EMDR. And for those that are unfamiliar with that acronym, it's for a particular type of therapy. But you cleverly came up with, I think it's called an acronym.
1: What I wanted to do, because in the clinical world, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and no one's going to remember that, the lay public certainly not. So I wanted to give the lay public a set of words that were in in context, but that they could remember. So EMBR is a memory-based therapy. So Every Memory Deserves Respect uses the same four-letter acronym but with a different set of words, but they're memory-related. So it's not out in left field somewhere. Now, so what's the
0: backstory? How did you come up with that,
1: that, just that part of the, the titling? Well, it's funny. I had always heard that, most authors really don't have a lot to say about the title of their book. That's left to the publisher's expertise and discretion. And I, don't, I was just thinking about the fact that even with the acronym, people will say, well, do you, do you know about EDMR? They would even get the acronym wrong. Right. So I thought, well, I've got to come up with some way to make this unforgettable. And it's got to be words that people understand. But I don't want to be words that have nothing to do with a memory, memory-based therapy. So it just occurred to me, and I'll never forget when I heard back from our publisher, Workman Publishing is our publisher, and the very first time they heard it, they said, this is fantastic, and it was never a discussion, and that was the title. I love it. I love it. It's so
0: helpful and so thoughtful, and when I I heard that, I just thought, yeah, that just makes it so much easier. And Shoot, I'm drawing a blank, speaking of memories. The developer of EMDR... Her name is? Francine Shapiro. Thank you, Francine Shapiro. I think that she has gone on the record of saying, had I known how big of a deal this was going to become, I would have called it something other than this eye movement. Like, it would still be the great right? She would have given a title that would have been a little easier to remember for folks. But this is, for those that are already on the journey of healing and trauma healing, they've likely run across EMDR, but we know there's a lot of people that aren't even in the mental health system that really are looking through the lens of trauma and memories. And so this is a really important conversation from my perspective because EMDR is one of the leading empirically based treatment models out there for folks to go through. And and you've been on quite a journey to discover EMDR. So can you take listeners through your own kind of mental health journey and how did you end up
1: with EMDR as being the form of treatment that really cracked the nut, so to speak, for you? Yeah. So my trauma history, which I didn't discover really until I came into contact with the EMDR therapist at about age 62 years old in Connecticut. And my history really revolved around or involved two things, neglect, childhood neglect, and what my therapist would refer to as willful on the part of both of my parents. So there was no attachment really to any of the two caregivers. And abuse. So in my case, there was sexual abuse physical abuse, and emotional abuse. And I grew up pretty much with this kind of a scattered frame of mind because I didn't know this stuff was going on, and I couldn't read, and I was accident-prone. I would have episodes where I would be left in the backyard in diapers and barefoot, feet age two in Denver, Colorado, and, and just be left by myself to wander out down the back alley and out into the intersection on Embassy Street in Denver, and a neighbor would bring me home. Now, today, that's when you call childhood services, you know, and to get someone into the household with that family because this is not responsible parenting. And so, mine was a combination of neglect and abuse. And then, I also in the home, my brother was a bully, a formidable bully who I was terrified of twenty four seven. That pretty much lasted through high school. And then in school, starting in elementary school, I also had was dealing with bullying, and anyone who's listening who knows or has dealt with bullying, particularly in childhood, know that you never feel safe. You never, ever, ever feel safe, and it's a terrible way to live. So I was dealing with with that, and when I progressed sort of as I got older, I was having two recurring nightmares that were as terrifying the first time I had them as I was, as they were the most recent time I had them. I had some serious phobias, so using a stall in the men in the boys' room or the men's room was, was absolutely impossible. Couldn't do it. A fear of heights, didn't know why. Any suggestion of intimacy with a woman was absolutely panic-inducing. Didn't know why. So the weird thing about those three things, those phobias, was I just thought that's the way I was. Which is sounds crazy to say that, but I just thought, well, this is just the way I am. That's pretty common for a lot of folks, right? Like' just get this idea that's where I am, yeah, exactly, because you don't know, and my state of mind is that starting at really young age was unsupported, unloved, no one really to turn to feeling basically worthless as a human being, and that's kind of an untenable state of mind, so I developed a survival strategy which is around grandiosity. I became a status status and achievement junkie and a workaholic and as an adult. I was in the advertising business on the account management side for about close to 40 years. And my life was all about work and status and achievement. So I had a, at the apex, I was living in a penthouse in Manhattan. And I had everything you can imagine that goes with that and belonged to all the right clubs. And, and then I got laid off, which isn't the same as being fired, but it's just as bad. Yeah. And that's when the wheels kind of came off. Now, prior to that, I had gone through about 22 years seeing seven different therapists. The first one I saw, my parents took, to me, took me to in third grade without telling me it was a therapist. They told me it was a doctor. I, I think already this dissociation of you know, disconnecting from the unbearable life to one that was sort of made up and bearable. Because I remember in third grade, I, I saw this therapist, I think three or four times. We did Rorschach tests. We, did, uh, we played cards. And at the end of like the three or four times I saw him, he sat me down. He said, Michael, you know, I think you're very unhappy. And what did I respond? What did I say? I said, no, I'm not, I'm not unhappy. Right. Right. So it already started out I was in third grade.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, so things like getting into medical school and not going, running the Boston Marathon without walking a step, being the first person I know in the United States to register his domain, his surname as a domain name in 1994. Wow. I could have had any domain. I wasn't smart enough to figure that out. I could have had generations of wealth. I just picked two or three other domains and sold them for $22 million each. <laughs> Obsessed with status, achievement, and complete workaholic. So again, I should add growing up, my mind was so in sort of internal state of chaos. I couldn't read. I had to go to reading uh, school after my regular school. I had a reading tutor on the weekends. I had a math tutor on the weekends. This is in second grade, right. uh, third grade. And also, I I wasn't really able to engage with the world. So I've always wondered as an adult, why do I know nothing about civic issues or local or federal politics? Why do all my friends know everything about music and artists and sports? And I know nothing. I remember going to a Led Zeppelin concert in in high school with my friends. They knew the band. They knew the band's names. They knew all the lyrics. I didn't know anything. Because when you're so disconnected, You can't engage with the world. And that was pretty much how I lived. And the piece, you
0: know, at that time, I guess in history, right, even the understanding of childhood trauma and its impact on like learning wasn't, I don't know. I mean, my understanding wasn't real well connected and they weren't really looking at the parents and saying, what's going on there? They're just seeing little Michael as having some learning challenges. Let's get him some support to be a better
1: reader, a better mathematician, not really connecting that. To give you an example, out of the, the level of mis, uh, the, I think reference is misattunement, yes. by the time I was five, I probably had five con- or six concussions, and I would always land right on my forehead. Uh-huh. So my parents' solution was to put a big piece of industrial carpeting on my forehead. Okay. In third grade, I'm outside, and I have, unfortunately, several pictures of this phenomenon.
0: Yeah. And
1: they are the kids, and there's that, who's that freak with the big bandage on his head? So it wasn't like, what's wrong? Or maybe there's something wrong with him. It's like, let's just tape this carpeting on his head. And maybe next time he falls, he won't get a concussion. So in my case, there was no uh, healthy attachment with either caregiver, which to me is so profound. And for those people who are listening, I like to think about attachment like your immune system. So if your immune system is healthy, you can ward off you know all kinds of stuff, never even know it's you know around you. Right. You don't have a healthy immune system, anything can come along and knock you out. <laughs> yeah. So, without robust attachment to one or two of your, at least one of your caregivers, you're pretty much out to sea. Yeah.
0: That literature, what I remember when I first started coming into, when I first learned about attachment theory in grad school, it flipped me out. I just couldn't even handle considering that caregiving environment had some impact on me. It just was too tremendous of a truth to try to grapple with. And I know there's a lot of people that will say, well, but my parents loved me, or they they did the best they could, or whatever. And that, that may be true. I'm not here to argue that. But the attachment system that you're referring to is a complex biological, psychological system that's supposed to help us form and maintain relationships and be okay when things are not okay. Exactly. Exactly. To be able to form and maintain relationships. In those first five years, it makes us just so much more contagious to insecurity and relational set down and, and let back and having a hard time
1: recovering. And also, also in addition to that, to me, you don't learn the relationship language, right. so you don't quote unquote speak the language that people who grow up with healthy attachments speak and know how to engage with people, how relationships begin, how to have relationships. You don't know any of that language. No, and it's, I don't want to say it. it's. there's so much
0: of it that's an unspoken language and it's an internal roadmap that gives, and part of it is in, becomes intuitive, right? To know what to do, the give and take of, of that relationship and having a model in your mind that this person's safe and approachable or this person's dangerous and being able to discern that. But even that gets very muddied when we don't have secure attachments through our childhood. It was interesting. I was just traveling in California and on normally you know, I have Netflix, I'm streaming Netflix, so I was never seen any commercials. But I was in a hotel room and just had cable TV and the kids were watching something. And it went on a commercial and it had a whole ad campaign for the first five years of a child's development. And it's all about childhood trauma and that you know, this month is a big month around that. And I was just so impressed that Mainstream media is now catching on. and I know Nadine Burke Harris wrote The Deepest Well. And she's, I think, the attorney general, or medical general in California. So I'm sure there's a lot going on. I, I share that all to say, it's, our understanding of child, early childhood trauma is growing, but it still has a long ways to go.
1: And also, one of the reasons why I wanted to create this book was because after 20 years and seven different therapists and had feeling like I was getting no relief. Right. And then finally meeting an EMDR therapist, Dr. Jeffrey Magni By the way, he was my co-author, Debbie Korn, is not was not my therapist. Dr. who was a colleague of hers, was my therapist. Yeah. But I realized that, you know, none of the seven therapists ever used the word trauma. None of the seven therapists were EMDR therapists, and I don't think they knew anything about EMDR. So I figured if I was ignorant about trauma, thinking, well, it's it's either natural disaster or combat or uh, yeah. maybe, maybe being held up at gunpoint. That's it. Right. Not realizing that trauma is a part of pretty much everyone's life. You know, yeah. getting divorced, getting fired, losing, you know, losing a loved one, losing a pet, discovering infidelity in a marriage, whatever. Yeah. If I was ignorant about the true nature and pervasive nature of trauma in, in humans' lives, and I knew nothing about EMDR, which my co-author always says is the most effective and efficient trauma-informed treatment for PTSD and, PTSD and trauma, then maybe there's a lot of people out there who also don't know about either. So I want to create a book that decoded trauma, introduced to EMDR, but in a non-clinical voice. And that is very much true. So,
0: listeners, as, as you're thinking about what book should I be reading, this is why I want to have my call on is I've only started into the book, but I've flipped through it. I've read enough other trauma books to be able to know like this one really speaks, has the scientific understanding behind it. But doesn't read like a scientific book on trauma. It reads very smoothly and comfortably. It has beautiful images. It's funny, just before Michael and I started the conversation, he was, you know, we're looking at pictures and let's see, what page is that? It's I guess it would be technically page. Thirty five. It says traumatic experiences remain preserved in the brain and body, often unaltered from the moment they occurred. And then there's this beautiful cube with a frozen, I don't know, with mosquito or something there. A what? It's a
1: flower. Oh, a fl- flower. It's a flower. Trap. 35 million year old flower trapped in amber. Okay. And that's a big part of what EMDR
0: is doing is trying to unfreeze these memories that have been compartmentalized or dissociated. Is that That's my understanding. Yes. Right? I've gone through level one training for EMDR. I've practiced it with clients. I've been on the receiving side of EMDR as well. So For people that are unfamiliar with this particular style of therapy, can you describe what happens in a typical type of EMDR session? Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30 minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show.
1: Yeah. And I, this is one of those times where I wish my co-author was with us. But I could tell you, EMDR is a evidence-based, trauma-informed therapy, memory-based, that was discovered in 1987 by Francine Shapiro. And 30 years since, there's been just an incredible amount of research that validates the efficacy of the therapy. There are eight phases in EMDR therapy. The first one starts with taking history of a patient, the phase that gets the most Notoriety, I think, is called the desensitization phase. Again, there's EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. And that's the part of the process where, with your EMDR therapist's guidance and assurance that you are safe in the presence of your EMDR therapist, and you have one foot firmly planted in, in present day where you're safe and these traumatic memories can't harm you, and then one foot reaching back into what we call it got a, tra- a target memory back into a traumatic memory and there's what they call bilateral stimulation yeah, yeah. in my case my therapist dr Magnavita, would use his two fingers and you track right. with your eyes the bilateral movement back and forth you can also use whole two paddles and it buzzes in one buzzes the other buzz left right buzz right buzz left buzz right, right. or um, you know prince harry does this the tapping on his on his shoulders so there's lots of ways to achieve it but they all achieve what's called bilateral stimulation, which is to distract the mind, the working memory of the mind, of the brain. At the same time, you're you've raised a memory that happens to be distressing, a traumatic memory. And in that process, that dual process of distraction and raising the issue at the same time, the charge of the memory is diminished. This is what Francine Shapiro discovered when she's walking through the woods. She was, something occurred to her, a distressing memory, and she was, noticed she was looking all around, back and forth, back and forth. And afterwards, realized, well, the emotionality, the the, um, intensity of the, was dramatically reduced. And, you know, since then, as I said earlier, there's been lots of research, and we have many resources on our website for that research, that demonstrates the efficacy of the MDR for reducing the signs and intensity of ptsd um she started with veterans and there's incredible research out there now on ptsd with emdr and veterans and that that's just when you think about it how do you carry around the memory of driving in a truck and and the whole truck exploding and losing two limbs right i mean then you realize you get back yeah, you get home and you can't keep a job. You keep getting in fights, or, you, or you're, you know, you're estranged from your wife or your husband, or you feel isolated or depressed or have anxiety or whatever. You know, PTSD is such a a common, particularly with veterans, phenomenon.
0: It, it's yeah, I know there's the empirical, statistical measures, and then the, I think there's the reality, and it's just so underreported in military there's because of that compartmentalization I think there's a lot of people that don't even I don't I don't want to diatribe too far off of that but the important thing is to recognize that when the mind experiences these overwhelming experiences that don't know how to return to a sense of safety it has to do something with it and oftentimes it gets compartmentalized or frozen off both in the mind and in the body and that's a big part of helping people understand is that memories are not just stored in the brain, but they're stored down in the physical body.
1: Absolutely. And likewise, the MOS, medically, let's see, is it M-O-S? Medically Unexplained Symptoms. Oh, yes. Right. Uh, yeah. And there are, there are myriad, myriad of them that plague people and there's no logical medical explanation. Yeah. And that gets back to how your body reacts. To
0: trauma, yeah, it's the stored trauma that the physicians are not asking about, but the body's responding to and remembering. And this is, you know, I think one of the more common areas is autoimmune disorders, IBS are common places where there's a strong correlation with developmental trauma, childhood trauma, and
1: later onset adult disease factors. Exactly. Well, and then you have the A score, right. the adverse childhood experience score. You know, ten questions and. They research, I think, has been proved, it has proved out that there's a correlation with the score that you have and your susceptibility to disease or medical issues as an adult. The higher the score, the more susceptible you are. That's right. That's right. And, you know, what's interesting for me as
0: both a, a therapist and a financial planner, and even kind of going back a little bit, Michael, you're just talking about, I, I don't know if you use these exact words, but kind of, grant we use grandiosity and success and status and just going after that and that in the field of financial planning we're often working with upwardly mobile affluent types who i often wonder like how many of them have underlying trauma that's driving that propulsive success and yet they're like yeah compulsive compulsive yes compulsive success right and that was me me. that was me success as a survival strategy has become kind of a go-to phrase that I use.
1: Yeah, it's a good one too, Ed. It's a good one because it's one of those things like workaholism, right, which society not only accepts but kind of applauds. So success as a survival strategy is sort of the societally accepted path to take. But it's a it's a treadmill. And the problem is, you know, in my case, when at the at the apex when I was the advertising agency I wanted to work at my entire career was Ogilvy Mather in New York, yeah. and I was a worldwide account director on the IBM business, the biggest piece of business in the advertising business. Yeah. And all the other things I had constructed in my life, this obsession with things and images and status and achievement. But if a client suggested that maybe I didn't do something well in a meeting, or someone said that I'm going to give you some feedback, I don't think that you did a good job I would just completely go in a downward spiral. You know, I'm going to be fired. I'm no good. I'm a fraud. I have no talent. Just going right back to that core belief that I had preverbally that yeah. no one's coming to take care of me. So I must be unlovable. I must be worthless. No good. And it goes just spiraling down right to that yeah. core belief epicenter. So there's no, my point is there's no, there's no, there's no even scaffolding. It's just. This web of achievement and status is built on nothing. So you, you rattle it, even the, in the smallest way, it just collapses. Wow, that's so powerful. I mean, I, I've had these these
0: thoughts, ideas ruminate in my head, but I've had very few people be able to articulate them as clearly as you are today, right? Is that the insecurity, the lack, absence of scaffolding, and what, what we're talking about is kind of back to that attachment patterns without the secure attachment. It's very hard to maintain your success and it doesn't take much to destabilize it no and there's no no, no amount of success or status that can protect you from that no
1: in fact where is that one let's see if i can find it for you here let's see if you go to page 15 maybe you want to read that aloud Talk, tell your listeners what the picture is uh, let's see oh yes this is so powerful
0: so there is no escape in the gravity of trauma. No distraction, not money, fame, or achievement can insulate you. And the image is a kind of a foggy two-lane road, and it's a younger man. And it, he's kind of mid-air falling onto his back, hands and feet up in the air. And there's
1: that free fall sensation that... And, you know, it's funny. We have so many cases that illustrate this particular point. So all these billboards, each one was designed to take what otherwise might be a complex concept and communicate it immediately no matter what your language is and what your culture is because our book has now been published in Italy in let's see, Korea and next we're hoping will be the Netherlands and maybe Greece after that. So it doesn't matter if that text obviously that picture is Spanish, Greek, Italian or French, The any human is going to get the point. And we have so many examples of like a Whitney Houston or a Michael Jackson yeah. where you can't imagine more epic, Levels of fame, wealth, and celebrity, and yet, just there, the trauma finally got the better of them. Whitney Houston apparently was had you know childhood sexual abuse survivor. Probably Michael Jackson probably was had lots of childhood abuse. I don't want to you know I don't can't speculate. But and you think that you can escape it, but you can't. You can't outrun it. You can't escape it. No, and that's that's a no full painful,
0: painful reality to come to terms with because there's many. On the early stages that are are still actively trying to run from it and deny and hide from the impact of their past, and it's I, co- great with great compassion and understanding because' it's, it's not easy to work through all this junk, even in a support of safe EMDR, at least my from my perspective, going through EMDR
1: is not not a walk in the park. No, it's not. And as I said earlier, or not for the safety and the constant assurances from your EMDR, from because my EMDR therapist, you're with me now, you're safe, no one can hurt you, you know, one foot, i say, firmly planted in his office in, the, in present day. Right. And the other one is firmly in the time and age of the traumatic memory. But they are there with you so that you have the, courage and feeling that it's safe with their assistance to face these things you know what strikes me as i'm listening to you talk about it today
0: is just that you're using the lens of attachment is they become a an attachment figure where it's safe to go through and and reprocess these memories and to help your brain and mind recognize it's it truly is over right and we can't this is that kind of i think Culturally, we hear a lot of people say, well, just get over it. It's in the past. Why can't you let go of it? And if it were that easy for our brains to be like, oh, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, my dad is dead. He can't hurt me anymore. My mom, my grandfather, my uncle, whoever it is. is but it's not logical, and it's not resolved by just hearing a declarative statement from someone.
1: No, no, because if, if you had been terrorized by your father at age three it traumatized, so that traumatized would be extreme feeling of helplessness or lack of safety that's intolerable. So it gets buried and locked in your central nervous system. It stays there. So that terror that was felt not by you, the adult, but you, the three-year-old, is sitting in there. And you know, I always used to refer to accumulated trauma that's locked in your nervous system as kind of a landfill that is sort of radioactive because it warps the way you see yourself, it warps the way you see, you, you see the world, and it affects the choices that you make. So we say, well, why is Julie on her sixth boyfriend who's abusive? Well, maybe there's some abuse in her past because we're unconsciously attracted to the familiar. Yeah. So it's, I think what's starting, starting to happen in the world. I'll give you an example. You know, there's a show on HBO called Succession. Very popular show. Fourth season just started and the New York Times did a pretty large op-ed piece about how succession is about intergenerational family trauma yeah so trauma is making its way into the mainstream and people try to are starting to realize that trauma is a part of life and trauma is like a stone in your shoe or a thorn in your side unless and until you remove it with in my case emdr therapy as the most efficient and effective trauma-informed therapy out there it's going to continue to have that radioactive effect in your life you you're not seeing clearly, you're not thinking clearly, you're not making choices with a clear mind. And this is part of that in, in a therapeutic relationship, becoming, being able to become
0: very curious about what pains me, what hurts me, what did, like allowing yourself to open up to those types of questions. And most of us can't just do that, even try to be doing that fully on our own. We need to have really a, a trauma-informed therapist, one that knows EMDR, who is a wonderful resource, to help you start to process and give you a a proven, feels like the wrong word for some reason, but it is proven path, right? To start to work through that and unburden it. And it's it's not a magic cure. It's not a magic elixir where all of a sudden you go in for one or two EMDR sessions
1: and you're better. So can we talk about kind of treatment length with EMDR, especially when people- Yeah, treatment length. I mean, yeah, I wish, I wish Debbie were here. I think the way she would answer that question is that it could take longer than you think, but- If you go to our website, everymemorydeservesrespect.com, and go to resources, there's a section there for veterans and veterans' family that has a lot of the published research on how quickly EMDR, not only how quickly it works in terms of number of sessions to uh, mitigate or eliminate the symptoms associated with PTSD, but also in comparison to Prozac or other things.
0: Right.
1: And that it, did it permanently. In other cases, like the Prozac, you know, it suppresses, it doesn't eliminate. Right. It doesn't. So there's plenty of, of data about efficacy, starting with that, and starting with PTSD. And it's really encouraging because it's so effective.
0: Let's talk about that for a little bit. Listeners, keeping in mind, Michael is, is a benefactor of EMDR. He's not a clinician, but he's spent a lot of time researching and talking about this. So this is his own understanding, my own understanding as a clinician, but not as a psychiatrist, educated in medication. So if you're on a medication regime, please don't just start changing that because of what you hear. But the medication, as as I've seen it in my clients and from your own perspective, does something very different to the psychological distress than EMDR, right? It the EMDR helps actually resolve the underlying issue. Medication, as I understand it. Only works at one level, which is kind of that biochemical level, but it doesn't really do anything to the memories that are activating the biochemical response. Yeah, in your brain and body, is that kind of where you've
1: landed? Yeah, I, as I'm hearing you talking, I'm thinking of what antihistamines do. You know, they they suppress the symptoms; they don't eliminate the reaction your body's having. They just, you know, they they for a limited time period suppress the symptoms, so the runny nose or whatever. And the minute that those wears off it comes right back. Whereas EMDR is a EMDR therapist based way to target and process those traumatic memories so that the charge can finally be released. Yes, and the experience can be filed where it belongs in long term memory, and you're not no longer victimized by the radioactivity of that unprocessed traumatic memory. So that's a really important part, right, is we start to talk about
0: memory networks and different types of memory that the brain-mind is capable of. And when the memories get processed and tra- traumatic memories get processed, they they move kind of locations, at least in very simple terms, move locations in your brain, right? The type of memory it becomes becomes more of a long-term memory. And you can look back and see it as something that's happened in the past, and you don't feel this huge emotional arousal around it. It's just like, Yes, this happened to me. That didn't happen for me. I'm here now. It's okay. And that's what you've talked about multiple times is the treatment is always about one day in the present, one foot in the present, one foot in the past. So we're stepping back intentionally with purpose, but so that you can really be fully present today and not be side rail because our memories are a good thing in general, globally. Memories help us understand how to navigate the world. But when we got a bunch of painful, threatening memories, they kind of try to get us to steer
1: clear of certain things that we actually probably need to be able to handle. On that note, Ed, I want to read my last paragraph, pretty much of the preface for the book. Yeah. Our memories, even fragments of memories, are clues, like a trail of breadcrumbs. They might be incomplete or confusing at first. But if we have the courage to face the ones that scare us the most, they can lead to discoveries that will free us. Our memories are the caretakers of truth in our lives, and every memory deserves respect. So that's kind of how I see it. And thing I want to mention about—can you read that last line one more time? Caretakers. Yeah, it's our memories are the caretakers of truth in our lives, mm. and every memory deserves respect. I love that. It's in the
0: title. I'm so glad to be revisiting it because that's—I mean—that was really part of what I was just so drawn to—is every memory deserves respect, and that really flies in the face of our own rationalization or minimization or denial that happens.
1: Yeah, or someone saying to you, Ed, why can't you just get past that? Why don't you just move on? Right. No, no, I'm having this. The memory is stuck maybe for a reason. There is profound psychological reasons why we create memories. Right. And why certain ones stick with us. Even fragments. Fragments absolutely serve a good purpose, but they may no longer
0: be relevant, right? And that the relevancy piece is like, I'm trying to think of a, a little simpler, like a beasting kind of right wheel how that memory of being stung by a bee is like it teaches us like don't mess with bees try to stay away from them it's okay to have have that memory
1: and use it oh yeah yeah that, that goes back to you know cavemen the problem is with the brain you have to help it understand that that was two thousand years ago and, and now this isn't gonna hurt you because what happens is you have the traumatic experience in an elevator right something happens nope i was just reading about this Band member of the band called Menudo is now coming out saying he's molested by the Menendez brother's father. He's, you know, finally coming forward and saying he was raped by Menendez brother's father. Both of them were in prison for killing their parents. So let's say you had an assault or something that took place in an elevator. Yeah. Your brain is going to go on DEFCON 5 anywhere time you get near an elevator. Oh, yeah. What your brain doesn't know is that that was associated with something that when I was five. Yeah. And it's perfectly safe to go to the other now, but
0: right.
1: it's there to protect you, right? That mechanism, you know, these triggers where some, you know, a smell can send someone into complete panic, a, a voice, you know, these triggers are like, they're like hyperlinks back <laughs> to the anxiety associated with it with the memory, even though you don't remember, the, you don't, don't know what the memory was. All you know is I had that, there was a certain smell and all of a sudden my hands are sweaty, cold 20 and sweaty, and I'm feeling real anxiety. And I don't know why. I just, that, that smell just set me off. So that's what triggers are. They're, they're like hyperlinks. I love that image of hyperlinks. And I think
0: I was working with a client recently and the beauty of doing my work virtually is I see into clients' homes, literally what it looks like. And They were sorting through this big yeah. table of bills and things that have been unaddressed and they finally pulled it all out. And they're starting to look at it, just kind of get overwhelmed. And I think about, you know, that's part of that conditioning is like, oh, I just avoided it, put it away. And so much of our financial life has negative, painful memories associated with it from our childhood. When mom and dad fought over the bills or mom cried over the bills or dad got angry or whatever. And so when we remember that we have lots of money memories that deserve respect and understanding how they're shaping the way we show up now as adults around our financial life, it's a it's a big deal. Michael, this has been such an incredible interview. And I appreciate you being on your journey and sharing this incredible book with the world. You've mentioned a couple of times, we'll have a hyperlink, but people can go to everymemorydeservesrespect.com
1: for more resources. Yep, yeah. yes, they can. And now we just sent out our first uh, quarterly newsletter. So we're going to automate the site so that any new subscriber will automatically receive the, the newsletter that just went out actually last week uh, was our first one. There's a lot of really amazing stuff in there. One thing, one item is the fact that, you know, the largest, I'm sure you know this, EMDR organizations is called EMDRIA, right. and it's It's the one place you go to, you know, it's international.
0: Right.
1: And they have a Francine Shapiro Award that they uh, bestow once a year. And mm-hmm. Debbie just found out that she's the Francine Shapiro Award winner for 2022. So it'll be a, a big ceremony in the fall in, in D.C. And, you know, it's just it's the highest honor they bestow. And it's so items like that in the newsletter. So if you subscribe, you'll automatically receive it um, and you'll be guaranteed to receive every one every quarter.
0: That's incredible. I think that the message to me is you don't have to go this alone. There are resources and lots of different types of resources from like that most, for me, most significant getting a really good, great therapist, EMDR therapist, but you being a part of a larger community, being on a newsletter, checking out websites is all part of the healing
1: journey because it all helps pull together these fragmented pieces and help you make sense out of what happened and deliver. And, you know, your listeners can go to Amazon to get the book. Your listeners can go to our website to get the book. Any Barnes & Noble, lots and lots and lots and lots of stores across the nation, um, they can buy the book. But our hope is the more hands it gets into, the more we can normalize and break through into the zeitgeist so that ATM, IRA, EMDR, it's going to have that level of conversational acceptance in the world and people will know what it is. That's what we're trying to do. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate your mission, and I look forward to our paths continuing to cross in the future. Me too. Thank you so much for having me, Absolutely.
0: I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, It will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed.